The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening, everyone. It's uh, great to be here this evening, and I want to thank ARPA for the kind invitation to have the opportunity to be part of this evening with you. And I'm addressing the, uh, the topic, the challenging topic of sexuality in our culture today. I do want to note that I'm going to do so from uh, a political and philosophical, but not a pastoral perspective. I'm a pastor, but I'm not going to be addressing the issue of sexuality in our culture this evening as a pastor, but more from the cultural and political standpoint, which this evening is about. This is, after all, the Association of Reformed Political Action. And so I want to come at the topic this evening in terms of the uh, political and philosophical ramifications that are facing us today. Now, the starting point for addressing issues such as this, in particular the decay and collapse of our culture in this area of human sexuality, has to begin with understanding it. Sometimes we want to jump straight into how we can pragmatically, in terms of utility and expediency, address uh, the specifics of what is happening without really understanding why they are happening. Until we've understood the why they are happening, we can't really understand how we're going to go about addressing it. Once we've understood that, we can begin to apply the Word of God in terms of our priestly and prophetic calling as God's people. Now, in order to do that, I do want to begin, having said I'm going to discuss this topic uh, philosophically and politically with Scripture, because that is the place we need to begin all of these considerations, including politics. I want to read to you from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, words that will be familiar, I'm sure, to most of you. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. If ever there was a summation of the cultural context in which we find ourselves, I think that is it. When we read about the last days, of course, I don't think there in that passage or in most of the others in Scripture, there is a reference there specifically to the last day, as it were, but to those upon whom the end of the ages has come, which is us, God's people. This is the kind of context in which we find ourselves today. So I want to begin by talking about the political foundations of the sexual revolution that we find ourselves in today. It's a kind of second installment from the one that my parents' generation began in the 1960s. Commenting on the life and thought of Nietzsche, G.K. Chesterton declared, and I quote, the man who thinks without the proper first principles goes mad. Thinking in isolation and with pride ends in being an idiot. Every man who does not have a softening of the heart must at last have a softening of the brain. And I think G.K. Chesterton was to the point in noting that if we begin in the wrong place, we end with social, cultural, and political idiocy. And it's with, I would say, this kind of idiocy, soft brains rather than soft hearts, that we finally come in our time. Now, any Christian 
who is conversant with developments in our culture over the last 10 years in the area of human identity and sexuality, cannot, I think, but see our social and political order as one that has lost its mind and gone insane, like Nietzsche himself in the dissolution of his own thought. Because with the foundational principles being false, the kind of folly that is on display today, that would say there are somewhere between seven and perhaps even 50 gender identities, or that homosexual marriage is a question of justice, only that can result from false first principles. And this madness is not limited to a small segment of society where we can now say, well, you have this small cadre of elite who are uh, dictating this idea into a handful of institutions. No, we're in the situation where from the courthouse to the classroom, these ideas are all pervading and they are now central to political life and political discourse. Now, the first basic factor in politics for centuries, actually, in Christendom was the first principle that man is a creature of God and made in his image. That was a first principle for 1,500 years or more. That was understood to be the case. The second principle was that all power and authority to have legitimacy must derive from God and his absolute sovereign authority. And as a result, the states of Europe, at least formally, and the United States, at least through the French Revolution, made their various appeals for legitimacy to God. Now, we may say that they didn't always get it right, that there were mistakes made in the history of Christian political thought in Europe, certainly. But they made their appeal to God. Modern political life, however, is no longer interested in the question of legitimizing authority. And if we don't understand this, we're going to feel endlessly frustrated about what we perceive to be a lack of progress. And the reason it no longer believes this is it does not believe morality and justice can be justified by an appeal beyond man. If you don't think that you can justify morality and the concept of justice by an appeal beyond man himself, you're not going to be concerned primarily with legitimization. Rather, the core political thought now is, I'm going to call it Nietzschean, in its concern with human will and with human power. Power and will. And with Christianity dethroned and biblical morality being viewed as a socially constructed form of oppression, questions of public morality and justice no longer involve God. If you look back at the beginning of the last century and discussions around the Lord's Day Bill, you will find that every part of the Canadian political spectrum were appealing to God, were appealing to his word, were citing scripture in the Senate. Now, we can't even, con even conceive today of a situation in which a Canadian politician would even clearly identify himself as somebody who believes scripture, never mind cite it, for the most part, in the political arena. The church and transcendent, transcendent authority are no longer consulted because that is a theological understanding of reality that has been jettisoned. Because people are now seen, these issues in fact are now seen, as matters not of theology, but of human psychology. And therefore, they are essentially political questions to be worked out in terms of the social contract. And that contract in our society, is constantly evolving. So that from one year to the next, it seems, the borders or the boundaries are moving, and whether they be the President of the United States or leading politicians in our own country, people say, well, I've evolved. I've changed my mind on this. 
And the social contract then is changes as it moves, these issues move through the courts. The popular term of choice for this ever-shifting ground is called progressivism. And yet, at the same time, we can be fooled into, even Christians, <clears throat> a sense that not much has really changed because we hear so much about and much continues to be made of the concepts of freedom and liberty and equality. And those are usually words that mean something important to Christians. And we're assaulted by a barrage of assertions through all the media that liberty, equality, and justice can only be served by the liberation of our society from all previous externally imposed constraints upon human identity, family, and sexuality. This is now seen as the basis for liberty and liberation and equality, the jettisoning of those things that you and I, I would suspect, for the most part, hold dear. And yet the goal, very self-evidently today, as we look at it, of this political philosophy that talks about liberty, talks about equality, talks about justice, is not liberty, but power. This is clearly manifest in the progressive centralization and concentration of power in the hands of the state. And the enormous bureaucracies with their specialized tribunals that have developed. So you see that the concern clearly obviously is not with the concept of liberty, but with the question of power. And the result then of championing the doctrine of liberal democracy, which marches onward in terms of equality, has been the effort in our time to destroy rival power centers to the state. And if we don't understand this, again, we cannot understand our contemporary situation. And what are the rival, the key rival power centers to the modern state are the church and the family. These are, if, and I would imagine there's a few Dutch amongst you, these are other spheres of sovereignty that have been swallowed by the state. Hierarchical and aristocratic institutions like the church and the family outside of the control of the state must be leveled to realize the egalitarian society of social justice. And social justice is the byword or the watchword that we hear today even in the church. But how are you going to bring about in a formerly Christian land or, an, or, an informally, or a nominally Christian land or formally Christian land the destruction of those institutions? The only way to do that is to redefine morality and justice. The family and the church have been seen as preservers of morality and justice. Those to be leveled or set aside or destroyed requires the redefinition of morality and justice where the church and the family become manifestations of oppression. Now, some of you may think, well, I'm not familiar with all of this. It depends where you live, in part. If you're in downtown Toronto, where I am, and involved in the media, I can assure you that the, this is the language, and this is what is being taught to our children if they are in the state system. How this has been accomplished, then, is what I want to consider this evening. <clears throat> now, I want to avoid any confusion at the outset by saying that when we challenge the idol of political liberalism, we're not attacking the concept of liberty. So when we attack the idea of liberal democracy as it's currently conceived, we're not attacking, I'm not attacking liberty. We must differentiate between the two. One of the most important Canadian political philosophers, George Grant, pointed to the important distinction that has to be made between basic political practices that we call liberal because they were meant to protect individual liberty, and then the theories of modern liberal philosophers attempting to clarify or to justify or to extend these practices. So Hugh Donald Forbes argues that George Grant objected to many of these theories 
And in the process of describing this, he identifies the core doctrine of man that underlies modern political life. And if we understand this doctrine, we'll begin to understand the developments that have taken place. And I'm quoting now. Modern liberal philosophers aim to defend and perfect the practice of liberty and equality on the basic assumption that human beings are autonomous. That is to say, free individuals who create their own rules of justice. Modern autonomous human beings do not accept any claim that the form or content of justice has been laid down for them by any higher power or authority on whom they depend for their knowledge of right and wrong. Justice is understood to be something strictly human, having nothing to do with obedience to any divine command or conformity to any pattern laid up in heaven. Moral principles, like all other social conventions, are something made on earth. Human freedom requires that the principles of justice be the product of human agreement or consent. That is, they must be the result of a contract. And these principles must therefore be rooted in an understanding of the interests of human beings as individuals, rather than in any sense of duty or obligation to anything above humanity. The terms of the contract may well change as circumstances and interests change. But the, restra- but the restraints free individuals accept must always be horizontal in character rather than vertical, end quote. Now, that's a very, very telling statement. That's the foundations of what we would today call modern liberal democracy. It doesn't have any reference to God. And as George Grant pointed out, justice is neither natural nor supernatural virtue. It arises from calculations necessary to bring about an acceptance of a general social contract amongst people. That means that justice is a sort of malleable public utility. That's all it is. And when, so when you hear the word justice, and you hear the term morality, you as a Christian are thinking about God, and about law, and about structure, and about order, and about moral obligation, and about conscience. And modern political thought isn't interested in any of that. And then you wonder why you feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall. Ethical evaluation is done then in terms of what they would call the greater good. And this is why we have the growth of today's great society where bureaucrats are redefining morality, human nature, and they're doing it in the name of liberty and the good of the people. And in terms of the will of the people. Ethical evaluation is carried on with a foggy notion, and it is very foggy, of human interests as the sole criterion for what should be considered moral and just, rather than any principle of justice, because man believes that he is autonomous, that he's a law to himself, that means, and that by his mind he will define justice for himself, and this will evolve in terms of his changing interests. So President Obama will just say, well, you know, when I came to power, sure, I was for marriage, traditional marriage, and now I've evolved. There's a new social contract. Thus, defining justice and morality today is an original activity carried out by these elites in terms of this contract. And these cultural intellectual elite who draw up the contract in the name of the people are really akin to Nietzsche's new nobility who will rule the planet. Forbes goes on to say this, which I think is helpful, and I quote, The horizons of meaning within which men think and act are simply the creations of great individuals and are not susceptible to rational demonstration or justification. He, that is Nietzsche, called for the new age of creativity dominated by his supermen, those who would create the new horizons that would give a new and better shape to humanity. Well, let's boil it down. What does that really mean? Well... With no God-defining truth, justice, (coughs) and morality that is revealed to man 
And with the result then of the collapse of a normative idea of creation and nature, man is literally playing God. He's his own creator. He's his own definer. And he will identify his own nature. Now, there is no possibility of these new moralities or forms of justice being demonstrated or legitimized rationally. Nietzsche's already pointed that out. Social and political life is arbitrary. So, if you ever felt like you're having an argument with a liberal and getting nowhere, it's because rationality is irrelevant. Legitimization is irrelevant. Justification of the view in any objective sense, is irrelevant. It is arbitrary, and arbitrariness is the basis of all tyranny. And we are in the jaws right now of the establishment of a new tyranny which will very likely result in a determined persecution of the church. It is at this point that the existentialist view... Let me, I know I'm throwing out a few big words here tonight. I try to eliminate as many from my lecture as possible. Existentialism is really the atomization of man, which means we're all isolated individuals being our own gods, defining things for ourselves. Man is a bare choice in a value-free universe. But at the social level, you can't live like that, can you? I mean, think about the people in this room. How many of us are there? If we all lived socially in our social order, in our community, in terms of our own status as ultimate lawgiver and definer of all things, we've got a problem. You can't have a functioning social order. So at the social level, a Marxist or socialist approach to politics is required in terms of social utility for the greater good. And it becomes the politics of power and coercion. The reason is very evident. If God doesn't define all these things for us, according to Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist philosopher who really gave shape to the radicalism of the 1960s that most of you I can see grew up in, he tells us that we must define our own essence. But with all men defining the essence of life and morality for themselves, all acting as their own God, Sartre said, hell is other people. Hell is other people. And one's neighbor, alienated from me as he now is, is a devil in the way of my self-realization, of me getting my own way and everything. Now that is not uh, a workable philosophy for a stable social order. It's anarchic. And so the individual will to pleasure, that's our self-interest, gives way in the political life to the collective will to power. And Sartre himself flagrantly contradicted his ideas of this atomized idea of choice, by joining the Communist Party eventually. Because he realized that even though it contradicted many of his ideas, at the social level, this is the only thing that could work, in terms of atheism. Modern man has thus delegated his freedom, and this is a critical point, and delegated his liberty and will to power to the libertine police state today. In an existentialist world, the state must become the organizing principle. It's the umbrella that is going to remake society, a society that has moved beyond good and evil in terms of God, in terms of justice, in terms of morality. It's gone beyond them. It's now defining all these things for itself. Now, it's at this point that we see the concern is not with legitimizing and justifying justice and morality, but with enforcing the will of the powerful. After all, how do you define real human interests if you've got no God? How do you define the greater good without God? And thus what initially masquerades as love and justice and liberal democracy and this all-inclusive egalitarian social order for everyone becomes the iron fist of arbitrary power. And this is critically relevant now to the issue of the sexual revolution and sexuality in our culture. 
In particular, the question of sodomy and the sexual revolution. And yes, I am going to use the word sodomy in reference to homosexuality, despite its political incorrectness in our time, because the word sodomy conveys moral action, not an ontological identity. And once you have adopted the terminology of queer, gay, and so forth, you've already actually been sold the bill of goods. There is no way we can understand the sexual revolution that has taken the West by storm without realizing then that reason, truth, and legitimacy don't matter in the pagan world. It's self-will, it's utility, it's power. And so what's happened is that human sexuality has become enmeshed with political rhetoric. That's why pastors don't want to deal with it. Because they're often told by their parishioners, well, you know, keep politics out of the pulpit. And if morality is made political, then every time you speak about public morality, you're being political. And then you're upsetting people and offending people. And most pastors don't want to do that. It affects the offering plate. Now, these rights are derived from, the rhetoric of rights are derived from uh, morally arbitrary contract making that's taken place in our society. I think our charter is a good illustration of that. And initially we were told, weren't we, many of you will remember this, the power brokers told us that sexual choices were private and that a state has no place in the bedroom of the nation. Wasn't that uh, Pierre Trudeau, if memory serves? And so homosexuals, we were told, should be left alone to indulge their sexual desires. They just want to have the right not to have their conduct criminalized. That was the argument. But shortly thereafter, the homosexuals began to claim that they were victims of discrimination and wanted remedial legislation to rectify this injustice. This complaint actually proved the fact that there is a very public aspect to private sexual acts. So we were told it's just private. So we shouldn't criminalize purely private things. But then when they demanded public remedial legislation, it demonstrated and proved the public nature of human sexuality. They came out of the closet to insist that toleration of their private acts was not enough. Their behavior must be publicly vindicated and recognized as normal. And on the heels of that, all kinds of other practices. Now, it is true, of course, that sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is inviolate and private. But there are definitive public manifestations of this privacy. Robert Riley, in his recent book, Making Gay Okay, is to the point. He says this, Wedding rings, children, private property, homes, schools, communities... The whole structure and fabric of society, in fact, is built to protect and maintain the conditions for that intimacy and its results. The whole social and political order is supportive of this privacy. It is encouraged and protected by law because it is held to be of benefit to all. End quote. Now, since... The homosexual activists have claimed the right to marry and adopt children and pass on inheritance to be considered spouse and next of kin and so forth. We have proof beyond all doubt that the homosexual is not simply concerned with the right to privacy, but they want public acceptance and support. And it's that that has engulfed Canada and all of the West today and which we are now trying to export to Africa and Asia and anywhere else with threat of sanctions and cutting aid and so on if the rest of the world does not comply. So that this year, Britain enshrined gay marriage in law as well. We were one of the earliest victims. It's been proven then that... What has engulfed our nation is a belief that the state has every right in the bedroom. Has an investment, which Christians have understood anyway, in the bedroom by endorsing and privileging various sexual practices. 
So what Trudeau said, beginning this transition, has been proven utterly and completely false by the very activists who have overturned our social order. No one claims the right to do something they want to be kept private and concealed. That's the whole point of keeping it private and concealed. You don't say, I want everybody to know it's my right. No public protection is asked for what is essentially secret. But marriage isn't a secret. Did you get married in secret? It's a public act. The results are public. Keeping a homosexual lifestyle truly private in the clandestine sense was an acquiescence to society's implied judgment that that behavior was wrong. So to keep it wholly private, or underground as it were, was an acknowledgement amongst those who practice those things that society recognizes that this is wrong, we do it in secret. That acquiescence went, disappeared. Some would say with the Stonewall riots in the United States emphatically. Today, the homosexual and increasingly representatives of other sexual predilections advance their cause then on the grounds of rights and moral principle. They refuse to accept the judgment that their actions are wrong, and they do so because, as I've explained, of the existential character of our age. They insist, therefore, on the reversal of this public judgment. And this means a legal recognition that obliges everyone to recognize the legitimacy of their act. Sodomy is the act which distinguishes at least a homosexual male from a heterosexual one. And so they require that society affirms sodomy as morally equivalent to the marital act. The ultimate objective moves well beyond the desire for this to be legal, rather as Paula Ekelbrick, former legal director of the Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund, has stated. She says this, quote, Being queer pushes the parameters of sex, sexuality, and family, and transforming the very fabric of society. We must keep our eyes on the goals of providing true alternatives to marriage and of radically reordering society's view of reality. That's the goal. It wasn't about letting a few people do in private what they wanted to do without it being criminal. This explains the revolutionary desire for legal and political redress. What it doesn't do is provide the motive for why the revolution is pursued in the name of justice and morality today. Have you seen how in 40 years you're suddenly on the other end of this very strange situation? 40 years ago you have this act as criminal. Today you are potentially the criminal for being against it. How? Why? is it pursued in the name of justice and morality? Now, for that, you need a theological explanation. This is why theology is relevant to politics. The contemporary sexual revolutionary, you see, is a walking contradiction. For although modern man claims there is no legitimizing of justice or morality beyond the criteria of human interest... He behaves with moral outrage towards those who would differ from his chosen lifestyle. Outrage. Out loud and proud. I mean, it's in a couple of weeks, Toronto is going to be the center of world pride. The very name, pride, what does it tell you? You see... They claim there's no legitimizing any principle of justice beyond a human criteria but then behaves with moral outrage towards anyone who would differ from that chosen lifestyle. Yet on their own premises of liberalism, other people have every right to an existential private interpretation of morality. So why can there be no toleration of disapproval? The biblical explanation for the intolerance, anger, and rage that accompanies the homosexual activists and other sexual revolutionaries lies in the theological reality of sin and guilt and its fruit in human behavior. 
Sin, you see, always produces in human beings, from a Christian perspective, moral rebuke in somebody who has a functioning conscience. Since man, whatever his denials, is a creature of God, we cannot escape this moral rebuke. It's always there. This rebuke and condemnation, when it is left unaddressed by Christ's atonement for sin, which deals with the problem of sin and guilt. If you don't have Christ and you don't have his atonement, it leads to a chronic problem of guilt. So much so that many modern psychiatrists have said that guilt is the cornerstone of all neuroses. Chronic guilt leads to powerlessness and all manner of sadistic and masochistic efforts to cover our sin. Sadistic means to lay punishment on others. Masochistic is to think that you can bear the punishment away yourself. Now, to live in perpetual vice, where you've defined yourself by your vice, cannot be tolerated. You cannot live with that without a powerful rationalization to justify it. You have to be able to justify a perpetual lifestyle of vice. The requirement is that sin and vice, therefore, be turned into the good. And the real moral order is to be replaced with something compatible with the activity we're trying to excuse. And don't we all know, even as Christians, how this operates in our own Christian life? How when we're in the grip of a habitual issue of sin, we start to find justifications and excuses for it. Why should the non-believer be any different? That's the nature of rationalization. God's woe is pronounced on this age-old transgression. The prophet Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Such people no longer seek to conform themselves to God's order by becoming just. They try and justify themselves by arguing that bad is good. When this activity is persisted in, rationalization eventually perverts our ability to reason and reality is completely inverted. And so for many of these people who argue for this position, reality has already become inverted. What, for example, could be more absurd than arguing that justice requires the legalization of same-sex marriage? As if there were such a thing. The same logic argues that abortion is a positive good and a loving choice. If murder is love, then indeed death is life. Good is evil, evil is good. Black is white, white is black. The progressive acceptance of sexual misbehavior reinforces and emboldens others to come forth, making exactly the same claim. Hence, the growing chorus of intellectuals defending bestiality and pedophilia in our society. The rationalization of sin becomes the engine of revolutionary change in the whole of society. And this is a point that Robert Riley has struck on, I think, very tellingly. He says this, and I quote, If you are going to center your public life on the private act of sodomy, you had better transform sodomy into a highly moral act. If sodomy is a moral disorder, it cannot be legitimately advanced on the legal or civil level. On the other hand, if it is highly moral, if it's a highly moral act, it should, in, it should, in fact, must serve as the basis for marriage, family and adoption, and community. As a moral act, sodomy should be normative. If it is normative, it should be taught in schools as a standard. If it is a standard, it should be enforced. In fact, it should be hierarchic. Active homosexuals should be ordained as priests and bishops. Sodomy should be sacramentalized. And this is why there is an insistence that the church go along with this. That's why the Anglican church is doing what it's doing, why the United Church is doing what it's doing. The rationalization on which sodomy is based requires the consent of the community to its normative nature. This is why it's being pushed and foisted through the education system. 
You can't turn on the television today without and watch a sitcom or a movie without this agenda being present. It's all pervasive. And there can be no holdouts like ARPA or TWU or the CLF, Christian Legal Fellowship, or Trinity Western University. These are all organizations that have been in the media. There can be no holdouts because they pose the threat of a potential rebuke. We must all say that evil is good for the rationalization to be secure. And it's this rationalization that drives what has been called the culture war. Everybody is to celebrate the new morality or you are evil, you're a homophobe, you're mentally ill, you're an oppressor. The only alternative is the failure, you see, for them of their rationalization which means the unacceptable root of self-recrimination and acknowledgement of sin and guilt and repentance, and that's not acceptable to any sinner. It is for this reason that the truth is unimportant, even in the legal sphere in Canada, as a defense against charges of hate speech when it comes to the issue of homosexuality. You are aware of that, that the truth of your statement is no defense. This is according to the courts. Truth is irrelevant because truth is what the political elite declares it to be for the time in terms of the current social contract. Rationalizations, you see, that are driven by guilt exist to maintain an illusion so that immoral behavior can continue. It's the maintenance of an illusion. This revolution requires then the tools of compulsion to enforce the acceptance of this. Self-justification requires the complicity of everyone in the culture. That's why organizations, Christian organizations, churches, institutions, schools are not being left alone on this. It requires the complicity of the whole culture to accept the rationalization. What's the nature of the rationalization? It's based on the idea that the sexually immoral are victims of circumstance, of nature, and now of prejudice and oppression, they're not sinners. And so the self-hatred that these people can feel, and I know this as a pastor, having dealt with many different people over my 20 years of ministry now, their loathing of themselves the anger and guilt that a person's conscience produces in instances of perpetual Sexual perversion is redirected towards society. That anger is redirected. And it's redirected especially to those institutions that rebuke the sin of homosexuality and refuse to accept the rationalization, especially the family, which is a living, breathing rebuke to the idea of homosexuality and the church, which is meant to preach prophetically about morality. These institutions are said to victimize and oppress and are to be coerced into the new way of thinking in the name of social justice. The pride parade, activism, and the long march through the institutions, associations, media, and school finally lead to the power to enforce this new justice in the courts and through government. So, friends, we are at the end of that long march through our institutions, not the beginning. This isn't a warning lecture tonight. This is a post-mortem. Most of the church wasn't listening. Most of, the, most of the church in the Western world has been asleep on these issues since the 1940s. We're at the end of the march through the institutions. Okay, marriage has been law for a number of years now in Canada. The only culture you see in which such a process is possible is one which is already overwhelmed by guilt and sin. You say, how is it possible that this could have happened on our watch? It's only possible in a culture that's already overwhelmed by guilt and sin because where there is no true atonement in Jesus Christ, when men are confronted with the rationalization of sin by other people, they are too guilt-ridden to resist the inversion of the moral order themselves. They feel too guilty. They have no Christ. They themselves see themselves as guilty. 
Therefore, there is no possibility in them. There's no moral resistance to the process. The West's steady rejection of Christianity and Christ's atonement has meant that in 40 years, sodomy has gone from being a crime to a sacrament of the modern religion. The guilty have no moral authority and no capacity for resistance. And this has meant that the legal protection of marriage between a man and a woman as a public judgment about the nature of human identity, sexuality in the family, and the purpose of sex has been altered. When homosexuality was and is enshrined as marriage within the law, the public judgment has already changed, as then are all the teachings that follow from it. Hence the transformation of the curriculum and the indoctrination of our children. The logic of this process of rationalization destroys any objective standard by which we can judge anything as really wrong or morally illegitimate. And this is why unthinkable things are making such headway now in our culture. If justice is merely human interest, that's utilitarianism, and a social contract, which is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and reality is merely socially constructed, which is Michel Foucault, the most cited professor in the humanities today, who is dead, he died of AIDS, one of the first public intellectuals to die of AIDS, he was a practicing homosexual. And defining interest in the good is purely a preserve of the elite in the bureaucracy today where we have delegated our freedom. Then in the end, anything becomes justifiable. We're actually under a new tyranny at that point. Now let me wrap this up in my last half an hour with... I'm just kidding. A summation of what I'm telling you. The rationalization of sexual sin, I'm saying, is due to guilt. And it comes in the form of self-justification that says evil and injustice are good and just. And this justice is called social because the group, the group, identity group, demands legitimization. But the idea of social justice goes hand in hand with social guilt. The guilt is also social because the classes, that's the family in the church, who do not accept the rationalization, are oppressors, still seeking to impose an old and outdated, socially constructed foundation on the rest of society. You, you see, are perceived as merely a draconian holdout trying to impose an old power structure of human will upon a present reality that doesn't jive with the new social contract. You're irrelevant. It's not that you're wrong. You're irrelevant in their minds. Since they, that's you, are no longer in power, the oppressor must become the oppressed. And since Christianity is the target of the coercive reordering by social justice, in particular the white, middle-class Christian family man is the very epitome of evil. He is a structural oppressor, according to modern intellectuals, irrespective of his moral character. But this just begs the question, doesn't it? It begs the question of what justice really is. How do you and I know we are acting justly? How is a culture to know it is acting justly in any situation, morally, ethically? Well, to act justly, we must know what things are. If we don't know what things are, we can't be just with respect to them. Justice concerns the nature of things and treating them according to their nature by giving them their due. It's not got anything to do with how we feel about the situation or a thing, but rather what they really are. So if I treat a man as an animal, as did the intellectuals justifying the slave industry, or really the abortionist movement today. I have treated him or her unjustly rather than according to their God-given nature. And so the question is, what is that nature? And this highlights the problem of justice for our existential culture. This is the way Sartre put it. And I quote, 
Man exists, turns up, appears on the scene, and only afterwards defines himself. If man, as the existentialist conceives him, is, in, is indefinable, it is because at first he is nothing. Only afterward will he be something. And he himself will have made what he will be. Thus there is no human nature, since there is no God to conceive it. Not only is man what he conceives himself to be, he is also only what he wills himself to be after this thrust toward existence. You see, according to existentialism and according to Marxism, man is his own creator and definer. He's his own God. If man defines his own nature, justice means treating him in terms of how he defines himself, not how God has defined him. Whereas Scripture says the uncreated God alone self-identifies, how does he do that? I am who I am. When Moses says to him, who shall I say is sending me? What's your name? To name is to define, to circumscribe. God, in effect, says, you can't define me. I'm the source of all definition. I am who I am. And every family on heaven and earth derives its name from him. He is the definer of everything else, and he has imprinted everything with a specific character and nature. And modern man, in his existential reach to be as God, insists that he is the definer of his own essence. There is no true and abiding nature of man or things. And this helps us understand why in modern language theory and modern discussions of gender identity, we have plastic sexuality, as one of my colleagues has called it, infinitely malleable. There is no word from God. There is no word of God. There's no logos. As a result, there is no true and living word. Therefore, words, our words, create meanings. They do not refer or correspond to anything beyond themselves. Language isn't about apprehending things as they are anymore. It's about transforming them into what we want them to be. Hence, today, man and woman, male and female, are no longer binary realities seen as normative. Can you believe that? You may be filling in a passport in Europe, and it'll say male, female, other. Instead, gender identities are multiplying exponentially because man has no true nature. Nature has no true nature. No objective transcultural justice is possible, only relative concepts of human self-interest, will, and power. And these ideas stand in for justice. Man demands to be treated then in terms of however he defines himself, in terms of his own will and desire, even if that definition is a lie and a rationalization to obfuscate his guilt. So in California today, children in the preschool years are required to self-identify at the beginning of term what gender they are. This is coming to Canada, believe me. To invert God's order and justify oneself in sin is the new ephemeral idea of justice. And so Riley says, the corruption of language spells the termination of justice, for it prevents us from knowing what things are. That's why it's so important you do not adopt the language of the progressivists. Because by adopting the language, you've adopted their reconstruction of reality. In the final analysis, though, brothers and sisters, I end on this positive note, because you're all looking so happy and encouraged at the end of this evening. The lie cannot stand, because it is a lie. It is the lie of Romans 1 and 2, because we are, in fact, creatures made in God's image, living in God's world, and that's inescapable. Only recognition and acceptance of what man is as created by God can lead to a social order that has any future. 
Our social order right now has no future, and we should be happy about that. Man's relative ideas, you see, presuppose that which is absolute. You can only have a meaningful conception of what is relative alongside that which is absolute. If the, relative, if the good and the justice is relative to itself, then it can mean anything. And it's not truly relative. It's become absolute for the moment. Man is totally relative. I can tell you this. Truth is relative. Ooh, did a Christian just say that? Yes, all truth is relative to God. It's related back to God. When God and his creation then is denied, justice and morality are reduced to whatever is world, which inescapably becomes the will of the powerful, giving us, as I began, the politics of power. In such a world, liberty and equality before the law are irrelevant. And I've been told as much. Where God's creational purposes are denied, libertinism in the name of freedom is the foundation of tyranny, the denial of God is the enthronement of man's will and illegitimate power. But like all sin, man's rebellion in the social order leads to one end, death and ruin. The humanist today has no future. He doesn't believe in the family. He doesn't believe in life. Homosexuality as a lifestyle is a culture of death because there is no procreation. There is no future. In such a context, the words of Proverbs 8.36 are important concerning the wisdom of God. The Bible says, all who sin against me wrong their own souls. All those who hate me love death. You see, God does not want the state to become a power state expressing man's alleged freedom from God. It is to be God's minister. That's why opera exists. To remind the state that it is a minister, according to Romans 13, it is God's diaconate. It is his servant. When it ceases to be such, it is a tyranny. All true power and legitimacy and authority come from God. Only his power and authority is non-disintegrating. It's only his power and authority that is non-destructive. And all things are therefore to be brought under the government of God in all spheres. They're to be placed under him, and that's our task. That's your task and mine. And we, if we are people who live in terms of the word of God, we are the only people on the face of the earth who have a future. Who truly have a future. So don't think this is the end. This is the turning of a page to a new beginning. Whatever the covenantal judgments we are under in these days of rebellion in our culture are, we must welcome them and thank God for his faithfulness to discipline us. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that only that which cannot be shaken will remain. And the road to recovery, brothers and sisters, begins with us and the doctrine of God's sovereignty. His sovereignty, this is our first principle that keeps us from a descent into idiocy. The sovereignty of God. We must reaffirm the total sovereignty of God in all its implications for every area of life and affirm without equivocation his total power and government in defining and predestinating all things. Created to move in terms of his sovereign purpose. It's in this faith that we as Christians, as believers, have meaning, hope, and a future. In fact, it's the only viable future for man and his politics. Because what we face today is the end, the burning out of man. It's the exhaustion of man with his utopian schemes to rebuild society without God. And so we are to commit ourselves to the sovereign Lord and seek his kingdom and his righteousness in our lives before all else. 
and apply his sovereignty and his word in our families, in our school, in church and community and model the Christian life of faith to a watching world and take up the mandate to be his prophets and priests in our culture today because this alone is true freedom. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.